Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by an educational grant from Abbott Laboratories, Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is a companion activity to our April 2012 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter, Interventions to Improve Nutrition for Patients with CF. Our guest today is that issue's author, Dr. Elizabeth H. Yen from Harvard Medical School. This activity has been developed for physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, dietitians, and physical therapists caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, and click on the May 2012 podcast link. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to identify the signs and symptoms of gastrointestinal disease that may merit further evaluation by a gastroenterologist, discuss important considerations in the nutritional management of patients with CF liver disease, and develop monitoring strategies to ensure optimal outcomes after gastrostomy tube placement. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line we have with us our April newsletter issue author, Dr. Elizabeth H. Yen. Dr. Yen is an instructor in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and an attending physician in the Division of Gastroenterology and Nutrition at the Children's Hospital, Boston. Dr. Yen has disclosed that she has an ownership interest in Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and has received an honorarium from Abbott Nutritionals. She has also indicated that her presentation today will include references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of appetite stimulants, including ciproheptadine. Dr. Yen, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Well, thank you, Bob. I'm very happy to be here and do this podcast with you today. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed some of the new research highlighting the long-term impact of early behavioral and nutritional interventions. What I'd like to do today is focus on how that information can be applied in practice. Uh, So if you would, Dr. Yen, start us out with a patient presentation. Sure. The first case is of a three-year-old male patient with cystic fibrosis and pancreatic insufficiency. He presents with poor appetite, chronic vomiting, and chronic constipation. He is at the 25th percentile for BMI, but it has been a struggle for the family to maintain this less-than-ideal growth curve. His past medical history was additionally notable for being a triplet and born at 35 weeks gestation. There were no sequelae of prematurity, but he has had one hospitalization for a pulmonary exacerbation requiring IV antibiotics. In the family medical history, we have no note of a gastrointestinal diseases or cystic fibrosis. He is on some medications currently, and these include pancreatic enzyme supplements, lansoprazole, ciproheptadine, and respiratory therapies. His workup thus far has included an upper GI series, which did not show evidence of malrotation, but did show some mild reflux. Poor appetite, chronic constipation, and chronic vomiting. The patient you just described has many symptoms that are going to interfere with his oral intake. So what treatment approaches would you consider to up the amount of calories he's taking in? Indeed, many things are interfering with his oral intake. I think an important note to take right from the beginning is that he's already on a few GI active medications, such as the ciproheptadine and the lansoprazole, and he's still symptomatic. So at this point, I would definitely consider a gastroenterology consultation, possibly for additional workup in addition to interventions. 
Also, the family should have some nutritional education, which would already be part of their cystic fibrosis care. But in particular, given that this child has an issue with eating foods in any significant quantity, we would want to make sure that the caloric density of his foods is maximized. So this requires quite a bit of nutritional education of the family. I also think it would be important to make a careful assessment of mealtime behaviors. Is this child allowed to graze throughout the day? so that he can eat whatever he can, which would ultimately interfere with his appetite and possibly result in less total intake, or are mealtimes organized? Additionally, the question of what is the kid doing at mealtimes? Is he being goaded to eat? Or is there begging on the side of the parents? Is there bargaining going on? All of these things could actually interfere with the child eating as much as he needs to to grow. This is some of the information you reviewed for us in the newsletter issue. There were two papers that looked at nutritional education and assessment of mealtime behaviors, specifically by Stark and Opipari-Aragon. All right. Now, let's assume that we treat the constipation and improve the vomiting, but this patient still has poor appetite and still has inadequate caloric intake. What additional steps would you recommend be taken? Well, one thing that as a gastroenterologist I think about is the effect of the appetite stimulant. In this case, he's using ciproheptadine, and from clinical experience, I know that the effect of ciproheptadine can wear off over time. As a result, I tend to recommend to my patients to cycle the ciproheptadine. Some patients prefer to take it only during the weekdays and hold it on the weekends. Other patients prefer to take it continuously for three or four weeks and then hold the medication for five days and resume the medication again. This seems to work to improve the effect of the ciproheptadine overall so that it can last a longer period of time. Other interventions to consider here, of course, are behavioral interventions to improve the mealtime behaviors, and this is really not just with the child, but with the entire family or caretakers who are feeding the child. This might be through a clinical psychologist or other resources available through the Cystic Fibrosis Center. We may also consider increasing the dose of the proton pump inhibitor. We don't know from this case presentation how long this child has been on the lansoprazole, but we do know that if a patient is on this type of medication for several years, he can actually have an increase in the total parietal cell mass in his stomach, and therefore the original dose may become less effective over time. We know from the case presentation that he is still experiencing some reflux, and this may be adversely impacting his appetite. Some patients experience nausea. He can't tell us he's only three years old, but certainly I would want to try this intervention before moving forward with anything more invasive. Additional diagnostic testing for this child. What else would you consider? Well, one thing as a gastroenterologist I often consider is celiac disease. About 1 in 150 Americans have celiac disease, and so it's important not to lose sight of how common this can be and how much of an impact this can have on somebody's nutritional status. The testing for celiac disease initially is screening blood test, and this includes markers such as tissue transglutaminase antibody and endometrial antibody. These are IgA-based tests, and so a total IgA level is necessary as well in order to be able to interpret the result of that celiac screen. I would also consider, at this point, endoscopic evaluation of both the upper and lower GI tract because the patient is having a lot of symptoms 
particularly the vomiting and the constipation, that can be a sign of a more significant disease. Specifically, I'm thinking of allergic GI disease or inflammatory GI disease that is currently not being treated. Would you also consider testing for food allergies in this patient? I would. It may be wiser to wait for the results of the endoscopy. It's controversial whether or not testing for food allergies, either through RAS testing of serum or skin prick testing, is wise and correlates with improvement in symptoms without there actually being a demonstration of gastrointestinal injury from an allergic process. So if we do find that there is eosinophilic infiltration at all at any point in the GI tract, then it does make sense to do food allergy testing. However, if there is no evidence of allergy at the microscopic level, then it's still debated. Perhaps a formal allergy evaluation would be the best approach. Should placement of a gastrostomy tube be considered for this patient? We could consider placement of a gastrostomy tube if all other interventions are not resulting in increased caloric intake. One thing we have to be cautious about is this chronic vomiting. We want to make sure we have a diagnosis and treatment for this vomiting before we put in a gastrostomy tube. In some cases, after placement of a gastrostomy tube, you can actually get worsening of reflux and vomiting. Well, let's continue along those lines, Dr. Yen, and assume that a G-tube was indicated in this patient. How would you approach the placement process? This may be institution-dependent, but in our institution, we recommend gastroenterology consultation for education of the patient and the families of the procedure. We show them what the tube looks like on a doll and how we would care for it. The tube can be placed either by a gastroenterologist or a surgeon, and there are two different placement approaches. The gastroenterologist would do an endoscopic placement of a PEG tube, that's a percutaneous endoscopically placed gastrostomy. This tube has a disadvantage in that it's a long tube that's always long for anywhere from three to six months after placement before it can get exchanged for a skin-level device. On the other hand, the surgical approach might be a longer intraoperative procedure, but the end result is a skin-level device right from the get-go. In many patients with CF, they prefer going directly to the skin-level device. It really is up to the family and the patient. We also find it important to make sure that the parents and patients have contact with other patients with G-tubes. Obviously, we try not to pair them up with other CF patients with G-tubes just for infectious precautions, but there are many patient families in the G-tube community that are willing to share their experiences with patients who are considering placement of a G-tube. Also, online now, the CF community can talk a lot about how successful these things have been in each case. What would you tell a family specifically to expect from a G-tube placement? Well, I would start with explaining that placement of the G-tube does not mean that the patient isn't going to eat by mouth. It's important that we only use the G-tube primarily at night while the patient is sleeping as a way to add calories to the 24-hour intake. During the day, the G-tube will be clamped and he or she will eat regular amounts of food as much as they can tolerate. The overnight feeds will gradually be ramped up to a percent of total caloric goal. So let's say if we want eventually to get to the overnight feeds be 40% of the total calories for the day, we'll probably start at 15% and gradually ramp it up so that we don't trigger any GI symptoms such as pain, intolerance, nausea, etc. We want this to be a pleasant experience. 
over time, we would expect weight gain and improvement in BMI. Dr. Yen, thank you for taking us through that case presentation. Uh, let's look at another patient now, if you would, please. Certainly. The next patient is a 15-year-old female with CF and pancreatic insufficiency. She presents with symptoms of abdominal bloating and pain after eating. She has cut down her total intake because of the symptoms over the past four months, and her BMI has gone down from 45% to 30th percentile. She's otherwise well and has no respiratory symptoms. Her past medical history is notable for mild lung disease. She suffers from chronic sinusitis and had a surgical drainage procedure one year ago. She takes antibiotics to clear her sinusitis on average every three to four months. She's on a standard respiratory therapies and takes omeprazole twice a day. She's also on a weekly bowel regimen of taking stool softeners and a stimulant laxative combination to prevent constipation problems. She does this every weekend. She also takes fat-soluble vitamins. Her family medical history is important. There's Hashimoto's thyroiditis in the mother and maternal aunt. There's also a history of osteoporosis in the maternal grandmother and great-grandmother. Her dietary history is notable for dairy consumption with almost every meal. She is compliant with taking her pancreatic enzymes. On exam, her abdomen is slightly distended, but soft and is not tender. Here, the differential diagnosis includes lactose intolerance, peptic ulcer disease, celiac disease, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and chronic constipation. Well, this patient seems to present a relatively complicated case, so break it down for us if you would. What are the pertinent factors here? Well, the first thing I notice is that her symptoms seem to be triggered by food. So this makes me think about a few things. Is there excessive secretion or acid production in the stomach that's aggravating some injury, such as an ulcer? I wonder, is she having some alterations in her digestive process or absorption of nutrients that are causing her to have this abdominal bloating and discomfort? And then I also wonder whether there may be some motility problems where the food is just not traveling down the pipe as well as it should and therefore contributing to some of the bloating and gas. I also think that the family history is very important here. There's thyroiditis and osteoporosis. And both of these are associated with celiac disease. So I will make sure to consider that in my differential. And then finally, I also think that her frequent antibiotic exposures are having an impact on her GI tract. All of these antibiotics can alter the bacteria that normally grow in the GI tract. And as a result, she can have some bacterial, what we call dysbiosis. So not the bacteria that are necessarily promoting healthy intestinal function. And she may be a candidate for probiotics. Based on those suspicions, what diagnostic testing would you consider for this patient? Well, once again, here I would consider looking at her celiac serologies that tissue transglutaminase IgA antibody and the endometrial IgA antibody. I also would consider a lactose hydrogen breath test because she is a big dairy consumer. And it's important that we not cut out the dairy in her diet because it probably is giving her a lot of calories that are important for her. So I would go directly to a breath test to get a yes or no answer as to whether or not she's lactose intolerant. I would also consider an abdominal x-ray. She has a history of constipation, and even though she's doing these weekly cleanouts, it might not be enough. She might be significantly backed up, and this could be contributing to her abdominal bloating and discomfort with eating. Let's say your celiac test is positive. What would the next steps be? The celiac serology testing is a screening test. 
while it does have very high sensitivity and specificity, it's still not 100%. And in a patient with cystic fibrosis, we know that there are sometimes inflammatory lesions in the small intestine, which could theoretically give you a false positive read on that celiac serology. Therefore, it's important to proceed with an endoscopy for small intestinal biopsies to look for the telltale signs of celiac disease on microscopy. And that includes blunting or atrophy of the intestinal villi, increased intraepithelial lymphocytes, and elongation of the intestinal crypt. Once the diagnosis is confirmed, then she would need to move on to nutritional education on a gluten-free diet. Celiac is treated with a strictly gluten-free diet. With the gluten-free diet, the injury from celiac disease is completely eliminated. This is important because the injury in celiac disease interferes with absorption of important nutrients. Once on a gluten-free diet, she will need close follow-up of her symptoms and monitoring of her dietary intake to make sure that she's gaining weight and doing well. Well, let's stay on that last point for a moment, Dr. Yen. In this patient with cystic fibrosis, how is her celiac disease going to impact her nutritional status? Well, this gluten-free diet certainly poses greater challenges for her to meet caloric requirements. It's going to be difficult for her to eat out with her friends and family. She will need to be very cautious to ensure that there is not cross-contamination of gluten in the food that she eats. So it might require a very significant lifestyle change for her. Apart from the dietary restrictions posing challenges, she'll also have a higher risk of low bone mineral density due to the impact of celiac disease on vitamin D and calcium metabolism. The vitamin D and calcium metabolism are particularly important in this patient where there's a family history of osteoporosis. Vitamin D is absorbed intestinally. As we know, it is already impaired in cystic fibrosis because of the pancreatic insufficiency, but celiac disease can further impair this absorption. It can also impair calcium absorption. Other important nutrients that can be impacted in celiac disease include iron absorption and other micronutrients. Iron is exclusively absorbed in the duodenum, and celiac disease has the strongest impact on the duodenum. And we'll return in a moment with Dr. Elizabeth Yen from Harvard Medical School. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www eCysticFibrosisReview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. 
Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a thousand of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up to date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to our May 2012 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Yen from the Children's Hospital Boston and Harvard Medical School. And our topic is Interventions to Improve Nutrition for Patients with CF. We've been discussing how the information in Dr. Yen's newsletter issue can be applied in the exam room. So if you would, Dr. Yen, let's continue with another case scenario. The next patient is a 13-year-old male with CF, pancreatic insufficiency, liver disease, and a BMI at the 50th percentile for age. His lung disease is mild. He presents for routine follow-up and has no active respiratory or GI symptoms. His past medical history is notable for diagnosis of liver disease during early childhood. His last ultrasound a year ago showed an enlarged spleen and a normal-sized liver with a hyperechoic heterogeneous echotexture. His current medications are pancreatic enzyme supplements, a proton pump inhibitor, ursodiol, respiratory therapies, and fat-soluble vitamins. The family history is unremarkable. He is very active in soccer and skiing. On exam, his abdomen is mildly distended. The liver edge is not palpable, but the spleen tip extends to the level of the umbilicus and the spleen is firm. There is no evidence of ascites on exam. His extremities are muscular, but with little overlying fat. Uh, Doctor, break this case down for us if you would. What are the most important points to consider? We have no active symptoms, but this patient has liver disease and splenomegaly. These are signs of portal hypertension, and they will require some careful monitoring. He also is a very active young man, so his caloric requirements are going to be elevated. His nutritional status, what consideration should the clinician take into account when assessing that? Interestingly, his BMI was at the 50th percentile, but the question is, how much of this is fluid weight that's in his abdomen, specifically in his spleen? The BMI may be misleading in this case. Therefore, it's important for nutritionist or dietitian to measure midarm anthropometrics. These include the triceps skin fold thickness and the midarm circumference. Other measures include bioelectrical impedance measurement, which can give us a sense of the percent body fat. Also, because of his liver disease, he's at higher risk for the fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies. We know that there's already a risk for this in CF, but in the case of liver disease, bile salt synthesis is further decreased and can further interfere with absorption of these vital nutrients. Uh, As you just said, this patient is at higher risk for fat-soluble vitamin deficiency. What other increased risks do these physical findings indicate? His physical findings, again, indicate portal hypertension. So we want to make sure that this patient is followed by a hepatologist. He's at risk for gastrointestinal bleeding from portal hypertension, which can present as esophageal varices and gastric varices. He also is at risk nutritionally from early satiety due to mass effect in the abdomen from that very large spleen. Additionally, that large spleen is particularly at risk for abdominal trauma. He's very active in soccer and skiing, so he'll need to wear some form of shield device to protect that spleen. Uh, Focus specifically, if you would, doctor, on this patient's nutritional management. What special considerations should be taken? 
even though his BMI is at the 50th percentile. As I mentioned earlier, this may be misleading. I would definitely focus on dietary supplements to improve his fat stores. The physical exam did show that he had good muscle tone, but decreased fat stores, and we want to make sure that he has enough fat stores. In liver disease, we also have to worry about loss of liver function, where the glucose tolerance is lower and the glycogen stores are lower. So this can actually lead to an accelerated starvation state. Therefore, we want to make sure that he has excess calories on board. At this point, I might also start educating him on nasogastric tube feeds as well as potentially gastrostomy tube feeds. I don't want this to be brought in at the very last minute. I want him to be aware of the possibility of needing these interventions early on. He certainly doesn't seem to be needing it now, but it's best to have him aware early. Additionally, I might consider medications to augment his appetite. In an earlier case, we mentioned ciproheptadine as an appetite stimulant. That's something that I might bring up here. Well, thank you, doctor. We've got time for one more case, so let's go to another patient. This last patient is a 14-year-old female with CF and pancreatic insufficiency. She has mild liver disease, a history of poor weight gain, and has a gastrostomy tube placed for supplemental enteral feeds. She complains of abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting with her overnight enteral feeds. She has found that the enteral feeds are tolerable at a maximum rate of 40 milliliters an hour. Currently, her supplemental feeds are only providing about 20% of her total recommended daily calories. Her past medical history is notable for mild lung disease. Two years ago, her BMI fell over the course of one year from 35th percentile to 15th percentile. Nutritional education, appetite stimulants, optimizing of pancreatic enzymes, and treatment of mild respiratory symptoms did not result in improvements in her weight gain. At that point, a gastrostomy tube was recommended. She initially experienced improvements in her BMI to the 40th percentile. This was the best she had ever been at. Her current medications include pancreatic enzymes, a proton pump inhibitor, ursodiol, respiratory therapies, and fat-soluble vitamins. Overnight, her enteral supplement is a formula composed of whole protein with a caloric density of 1.5 kilocalories per milliliter and 10% MCT oil. During the daytime, she averages 80 to 90% of her caloric goals by mouth. The family history is notable for depression in the mother that is currently well-treated. The patient herself has missed a lot of school lately because of complaints of abdominal pain in the morning. On exam, her weight is down one kilogram from the previous visit just two months ago, and her BMI is at the 25th percentile. She has a flat affect. Her abdomen is soft, non-tender, non-distended, with a well-healed gastrostomy. The stool mass is palpable in the left lower quadrant. You presented a relatively complicated case. To your mind, what are the most important features? Well, this young woman has weight loss, and that's very concerning, especially since she has a gastrostomy tube in place. That makes me concerned that either it's not being used properly or perhaps there's something else interfering with her intake. She also has GI symptoms that are not being addressed. Her weight loss and her GI symptoms, what diagnostic testing would you likely consider? On exam, I also felt a stool mass, so I'm going to start off with an abdominal x-ray and see what the stool burden looks like. If there is evidence of constipation on the x-ray, I may consider a significant bowel clean-out followed by maintenance medications for her constipation. Again, I'm going to consider celiac serologies because I always consider it when there are GI symptoms that are not explainable by other findings. And finally, I'm going to consider a gastroenterology consultation if this constipation clean-out doesn't improve her symptoms. 
Regarding her nutritional management while the workup for her GI symptoms is being completed, what changes would you make immediately? Well, it should be noted that her pain and nausea and vomiting is occurring in the morning after her overnight feeds. So I might target that formula and change it to something that's more easily digested. A polypeptide formula with higher MCT percent is indicated. I would also consider an appetite stimulant medication since she's not on one right now. She had trialed one in the past and it wasn't effective, but I would trial it again. And I would make sure that her proton pump inhibitor is optimized with twice daily dosing to minimize reflux impact on nausea and abdominal pain. This is a 14-year-old girl with a G-tube. What about the psychosocial factors that might impact success with enteral supplementation? While this patient has some depressive symptoms, she is missing school, she has a flat affect, and she also has a family history of depression. So we definitely have to consider the impact of depression on her oral intake and her tolerance of her enteral feeds. Also, this missing of school may be related to some difficulty with her peers. Are they accepting of the fact that she has a G-tube? Perhaps some self-esteem issues are also contributing to the school absenteeism. It was mentioned in the review that poor body satisfaction is associated with inadequate caloric intake in CF patients, particularly in young women with CF. So this is something that we certainly have to address and perhaps refer to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Dr. Yen, thank you for presenting those very interesting cases. What I'd like to do now is summarize what we talked about today. So let's start with identifying the signs and symptoms of GI disease that can merit further evaluation by a gastroenterologist. Well, we've seen that symptoms such as vomiting, anorexia, bloating, abdominal pain can all be presenting signs of various GI diseases that require specific diagnosis and treatment of, such as celiac disease, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, lactose intolerance, and peptic ulcer disease. The most important considerations in the nutritional management of patients with CF liver disease. We learned that CF liver disease has higher nutrient requirements because of the lack of function of the liver and that there is a higher risk for fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies due to the low bile salt pool. And finally, monitoring strategies to ensure optimal outcomes after G-tube placement. Well, we saw in the last case that even after placement of a gastrostomy tube, you can have some weight loss. So it's important to keep track of its use make sure that the patient is tolerating the feeds, and that we are meeting the nutritional goals. Dr. Elizabeth Yen from the Children's Hospital Boston at Harvard, thank you for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Well, thank you. It was quite a pleasure. This podcast is presented in conjunction with E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME and CNE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.75 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity.
For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Abbott Laboratories, Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.